You're listening to The Dealmaker's Edge with A.Y. Strauss, diving deep into stories behind commercial real estate leaders. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Dealmaker's Edge. Today, we're honored to be joined by Salman Khan, who is the founder and managing principal of Stabilist Capital Management based in New York City. A graduate of Columbia and Wharton, Salman has a track record, includes building out cutting-edge business units at Goldman Sachs, managing a $600 million discretionary portfolio at Silverpoint Capital, and collectively managing more than $6 billion over the course of his career. In 2010, he founded Stabilist Capital Management, which is a privately held investment firm focused on senior-secured, short-duration bridge loans collateralized by commercial real estate and commercial industrial assets across the U.S. The firm has raised over $1.7 billion since its inception and is currently deploying its fifth fund. Salman, we're really happy you're here, and it's a pleasure to welcome you to the podcast today. We've had a lot of conversations. We've really gotten to know each other, which has been great. We try to go back in the time machine a little bit for our listeners just to get a, a broad flavor. Maybe you could talk about your earlier years, you know, coming to the city or you started at Columbia. I know you majored in electrical engineering, if I remember correctly. I think I saw the light relatively early of not wanting to continue to be an engineer. Uh, although given what's happened in tech, maybe, maybe not. Uh, but in any event, never worked as an engineer, did graduate as an electrical engineer, joined Wall Street right after, and then, then we went to business school and then started at Goldman investing in loans, been doing since 1992 now. And maybe you can talk about those earlier years at Goldman. It's probably not anywhere near the Goldman of today. Um, yeah. And the lending world in those years was probably moving around kind of in interesting ways. Yeah, no, I, I think the most interesting piece of it was, um, it was a smaller firm, but probably moved more quickly in terms of deploying capital. Uh, then and I was there for 12 years. I saw the progression of a private partnership to a public company. And it was interesting that this is something as we both run companies that are private. Power is distributed more evenly if you have a partnership so your partners would come together and make a decision as opposed to having you know co more corporate hierarchy which as the firm became a public company power was more vested in the committees which is then makes it more different from other banks but what the goldman and which we tried to replicate at stabilist was able to do was to get to decisions on relatively large positions for a smaller company at that point relatively quickly, which was our edge. And remember coming up with an idea and going all the way up to the CEO of the firm in three days, which would be unheard of today. For sure. And I'm sure if it came from you, it was expedited though, probably right. I mean, the, the way you did that is you came up with the idea or somebody else did, or you were the support on the idea. You'd go to your partner who then had access, right? I mean, that's the point. Like, even though it was one partner, many in a partnership, you know, each of the 250 partners or whatever, they were partners. They had access to whoever they needed to go to uh, to make relatively streamlined decisions. Different times for sure. And then you did that for, for how many years before you well, spun out? 12 years. Uh, and it was interesting that you sort of raise your hand and you say, hey, I want to go do this. And to the extent your business idea made sense, they would support you. And then it wasn't always provide you the infrastructure. So I think in terms of business development, you were first said, okay, the idea was vetted by relatively sophisticated people. Um, then if the business started getting traction in terms of revenues and profitability, then the entire 
you know, the sort of what they call now the federation, which is the entire back office of the firm, would then focus on your business and make sure that, you know, tax, compliance, accounting were all in place because then they're saying, okay, now this has become a profit center. So it's a real business. You're going to have now integrated into the mothership. Uh, so I went through that with a couple of businesses I created for Goldman. It's quite, I mean, and it was a invaluable experience as you think about running your own business because as many of us who are on the investment side of the business, we never see what it takes to actually run a holistic business. If you are in de novo startup businesses, which I did a couple at Goldman, you had to, by definition, deal with the back office and build the back office because it didn't exist for that business because it was effectively a startup within large organization. But from my perspective, it was invaluable in terms of being able to understand what it took to run a business as opposed to just making investments sitting on your desk and evaluating credit or whatever else you need to do. Amazing. It sounds like it was an incredibly entrepreneurial time at an exciting growing bank. And you really blossomed there in those early years. And I'm sure the contacts you made and the friends you made, those are lifelong relationships, which I'm sure had a lot of value. And then talk about Silverpoint Capital. Talk about the transition and how that spun out and what was the impetus for it. I mean, again, I had worked with the two principals of Silverpoint at Goldman in the context of we had a business lending, lending money on real estate deals mostly, which is what I do now. But then we had found a niche around lending money on other asset classes. For example, we had an idea of saying, hey, this will not make any sense now. But at one point, we had AM and FM radio stations that used to have duopolies in certain markets that were very valuable assets. In any event, we ended up lending to those as Clear Channel and Infinity Broadcasting was coming through and just buying them out, right? So we would let the AM station buy the FM station and then create a more valuable a duopoly, which then Clear Channel would come and buy and at a high price, we'd get paid a good return on our loans. And that was a business that obviously was real estate like. At the end of the day, you're making a loan to an operating radio station company. So we did that in conjunction with one of the partners who started Silverpoint. Uh, and then the other partner I'd worked with in the context of, uh, since I was an expert in some of loan assets like automobile loans, one of the companies that they were looking at had been downgraded. So he needed to know what he should pay for its debt. So I had three days to evaluate like $15 billion of collateral. It's like, okay, I'm going to be making a lot of guesses, but we'd seen enough people of similar ilk that we could draw conclusions and we knew what the reputation of that particular entity was in the market. And we ended up buying, you know, fairly big position in the public debt of the company, and I had helped him do that. So the two principals knew me as a credit analyst. And when I went to them with the idea of saying, hey, I can do this, I never thought that Goldman was inefficient, but what we did at Goldman, we call it 10 people. We did at Silverpoint with three, because I was told, okay, you have 10 people there. What's the minimum you can take with you and not lose any volume? Maybe four? Like, how about three? <laughs> And that's really startup-y culture there. That's pretty funny. Uh, you know, so, but that's by definition hedge funds, right? I mean, they tend to be uh, entrepreneurial. So it was a good, um, from my perspective, a good move from being an entrepreneur when I'd created businesses within Goldman, but had the backing of the firm to, you know, pretty much in a hedge fund environment, it's like, you know, you are the business. I mean, they provide you some support, but it's really a desk and a computer and then, you know, accounting. But other than that, 
it's not the same as what you have in a larger firm. So it was, again, a good experience set to be ready to launch and run Stabilis. Amazing. And launch you did 2010, the same year actually I started my firm. It was a very exciting year in that GFC was still roiling through, I guess, at that time. Maybe you could talk about those early years, 2010 as a credit guy. It was exciting. You know, a distressed credit guy. It was probably very exciting. Yeah. No, I mean, the only issue, if I had had 500 million to invest in 2010, that would have been better than 50 million, which I made because as for all the reasons, when you're in the middle of liquidity constrained environment, like we were in the GFC, you know, for a startup, capital is hard to come by, but we deployed that in 11 months, like from start to finish and went into a second fund, which is 200 million uh, with a pretty strong overlap with the investor base that we started with. Uh, so I think even with the experience that I had with working at a relatively entrepreneurial part of both Goldman and Silverpoint Capital, I'd say that the experience of saying, okay, now I have to worry about compliance, accounting, investor relations, documentation. I mean, like what it takes to launch a fund, even then you don't realize what, how many items there are that you need before you get going. And now it's easy. Like we've done, done it six times. You've been through the ringer, you know, yes. all those things like um, getting office space or how to find great people to hire or making sure your payroll companies, right? Payroll company, all of it falls into your head. And I know you've got a great team and you've built it up and a great reputation. But I guess coming out of the GFC, it was probably a good time to grow the core business because people were still reinventing themselves. People got sort of lost in the crisis. A lot of people went down and rebuilding. So capital constraint is probably an exciting time from 12 to 16, maybe we could talk about those years, which I think were some pretty solid growth for you. I think I'd say the early years are, are probably the best right after the crisis in terms of investing capital on distressed. And, you know, the way I think about the distressed business, which we used to be in, we're not in anymore, but may go back to if, if the markets break again, is that like you're buying debt with equity-like upside and debt-type downside protection if you're buying collateralized debt. So, I mean, as an example, let's say you buy something which pre-GFC was worth 5 million, had a 3 million loan against it, and you bought it for 1.5 million. Well, it's unlikely that you lose money, but the loan could pay you off at 3 million because the value could recover to 4 from, you know, what it was at its peak at 5, and the borrower has incentive to find money to pay your debt off. In which case you made, you know, 2x your capital. So you have equity type returns, although cap, right? Because it is debt at the end of the day. But your discount between what the face amount of the debt is and what you bought it for is like a call option type situation. And your collateral provides downsides. It's a great business if you enter it at the right time and the purchase prices are with a five, six or seven handle at most, right? 50, 60, 70 cents on, on the dollar. I think anything above that, we think, and which is why we pivoted to bridge business, um, originating debt is a better option because you would rather than skim the cream of people that need capital but don't have impairment of value and generate a higher return with a shorter duration, which I think, and you have less information asymmetry because the problem with distressed is somebody's selling a note, it's selling you the paper and you go and look at the collateral but you don't know who the management is. They're obviously non-performing, otherwise nobody would sell it. You don't know why they're non-performing, whether there's ability to pay, but no propensity to pay, or it's the opposite. 
a propensity to pay, but no ability to pay. And the latter is better. Because then you can cut a deal. But there's some portion of people that are just, just never, never going to pay, never going to pay. And then I guess that's why you've, you've stayed true to the origination side. You know, you know your own borrowers, you find your own deals, you originate your own loans, and the recipe has been working well. And it's been great to see. Maybe you can fast forward to today. I mean, obviously the equity guys is not so many deals as they were a year or two ago. The capital markets are certainly pretty bizarre, but you're busy. And it seems like it's a great time to be in your space. And maybe you could talk about what it looks like today. So I think that I'd say that the amount of deals that we are seeing that fit into our bailiwick where we are competitive is higher. But the overall volume in the market is lower. So I think, but it's an enormous market. It's a $7 trillion of value, $5 trillion of debt. It's an enormous market. And a lot of it, I mean, changes hands for whatever reason, right? I mean, and... It's interesting that we have a situation which I was just, as we were talking to your friend earlier, right? I mean, like, we're in a situation where people are saying, hey, it's a no-brainer to get 5% on treasury notes, short duration. Why the hell should I have any deposits? So anybody who's awake has actually taken deposits out of the banking system, which is causing a mini run on the banks because they are liquidity constrained. They have a loan book. Uh, which isn't paying off as quickly as it was before because the capital markets are constrained because of higher spreads and higher rates. So this is an environment where I think if somebody wants to do something, you know, for a short period of time while this stuff equates and, and gets better, there's an opportunity to lend money on good assets, good borrowers, good product, when they think they're doing a great trades and then less interest rate sensitive. And in many cases, they are. I mean, some of our borrowers, we wouldn't have seen two years ago, but last year we funded a deal where he owns 1,700 hotel rooms and most of them are to long-term debt with banks. He found this deal uh, and it was trading at auction and the closing terms were 30 days. So you now have, I mean, no bank, if you win, no bank is going to come through in 30 days. We showed up to the auction with a term sheet. Amazing. He said, look, we will go up to this level. And then he called us and said, look, I need to pay a little bit more. We said, look, we're fine at our level. It just means your LTV will be a little bit lower. He ended up winning it. And his thesis, and I'm just want to segue into an example. His th- like, He's a Canadian operator. He owns assets in New York and other markets as well. But majority of his assets are in Canada. So he understands Canada extremely well. But he said, look, the Vermont market is going to just explode because the Canadian border has been closed. And, and it's just going to open. And nobody thought of that in the auction. So he stole this asset. It's a Marriott courtyard. He is at my very high debt service numbers. He's covering that at three times. Wow. Wow. And the so fact I, that you'd have that term sheet fast and ready to roll and you had the conversation and relationship prior to the auction, that speaks volume. And I think some of it we'll do then. And I, I mean, we've gone to him now four or five times and said, hey, what do you think of this asset? You've underwritten it. And I mean, so far he's bid on a couple in addition to the one that he was interested in. But for him to know strategically that there is somebody willing to come with him um, is something that's been valuable for him. Sure. Um, Maybe you can talk about the state of the market. That seems like an amazing deal you did. I know every week you're closing deals. There's a lot of volume, which is solid. Maybe we can talk about a little bit on a macro basis. Um, You're obviously not in the equity business, but it's uh, extremely related to what you're doing because you need the debt and equity to work together. 
Maybe you could talk about how six months ago versus today, tower deals coming to you, how are they looking? What are the borrowers saying? I think that when you spoke to them and they were like, yeah, interest rates are never going to go up. And we're like, okay, fine. So then you shouldn't have a problem with a spread or call it whatever it was. I mean, you made some loans, it's 800 over, it 0.5%. So it's a 10.5% including fees. And with some leverage, we get to the returns you want. But that's an incredibly attractive loan, although they're going to try their best to pay us off as quickly as they can because now, now our rate is 13.5% because so far it's gone up to almost 5%. So I think, I think that the sticker shock on rate is a real pain. And what we did because of that is we lowered our spreads. So we like, I mean, so that's been extremely well received because as the market has been closed, it's like, well, we lowered our spreads. I mean, when I say that, and I'm like, why is there less risk? I said, no, there's not less risk. But at the end of the day, real estate is not going to be able to, you know, take a 13% rate. And if it is, it's not real estate you want to lend against. So the rule of thumb is, look, I mean, we've been in, call it 9, 10, 11% rate product always. Yes, it's accreted up on the existing portfolio because floating rate products and rates went up, but we were responsive to the market by lowering our spreads. So I think the answer is we're seeing more product where we are competitive with the market. Although, again, to my point, real estate can only take so much rate. It's not irrational because at the end of the day, rents will adjust. If rates have gone up because of what they have today, because of inflation, rents will adjust. We're seeing it in some markets, rent to hospitality. You're seeing it in the hospitality market where ADR is above 2019 and your rent parts are above 2019 because most of that has come through rates being higher on a daily basis as opposed to occupancy, which is still slowly trending to where it was in 2019. I think that's like you have to respond to the market and you have to have your pulse on where things are going uh, and you have to structure things that are creative and valuable to your, to your borrowers. I mean, today, I'd say our value proposition is we'll be at market if we can, given our capital structure and what we promised our investors, uh, but we will be creative in solving your problem. So, I mean, like, you know, we did a marina deal and we closed it in three weeks because our borrower was at least 100 plus million, I don't know if they're worth a billion, but hundreds of millions of assets. They had three weeks to close because they'd gotten an assignment of a contract from somebody who couldn't fund the deal. So it was a very good deal. And they're like, look, we need this money. Can you close in three weeks? And we did. And we're seeing another deal, which hopefully we get also from the same borrower for similar reasons. They're opportunistic. They're finding opportunities. They get an assignment of a contract with somebody's hard. Well, they have to close. And typically, time is too long for a conventional lender. Seems like those stories are popping up more and more. The banks are sort of leaving people at the altar or changing terms or pushing a PG or God knows what, but that people didn't underwrite for. And the fact that you're there is critical for deals happening. And it seems like you laid out the value proposition in a very solid way there. So I don't have to push you on that. What's the most exciting aspects the next year or so in the markets for you? Just to see more quality deal flow you wouldn't have seen or maybe get into new industries, new space? I think it's been a good year. We're very happy with where we are. We're very happy with where the team is. I think continuing with our mission of being sort of focused on what we do, incrementally adding to our capital base a little bit. I mean, we think we're solid capital base, but the way we've structured it is um, 
for an illiquid product, we do provide liquidity and we provide some comfort. Because of that, in an open-ended structure, we're always raising capital. So that's something which we need to continue to do. Uh, and then it's team building. Really pleased to have had really good people join the team. And, you know, contrary to popular belief, young people do want to come to work. Uh, and it's a pleasure to teach them and, and, and to make them good. I mean, so our senior team has been in place and they're solid. Uh, but I think our next challenge is going to be to take, you know, the younger people, bring them in-house and train them and make them investors of the future. And for people listening, it seems like it's a great time to be in debt um, together with Salman if you're looking for, for a great home. Because there's a lot of shops that are set up to take down a lot of acquisitions and they're pretty quiet right now. So it's nice that you're in a very active seat uh, with the great culture you've been building and a top-notch team as well. Maybe we could turn to what you're doing to manage the stress. I mean, you've been through stressful situations over the course of your life. You underwrite deals. You have to move fast. You have to hire. You have to manage a team. What are you doing to manage the mental aspect of your career? And it may change during different times, but day to day, I know you're into a lot of physical activities. You've got some hobbies. You know, one thing I wouldn't recommend it was meant to be a five-day ski trip. I ended up being one day because I got injured on the first day. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, not too badly. So the rest of the time was good because we were in the mountains with friends. So we enjoyed good food and a relaxed atmosphere. I do make an effort to, you know, sort of unplug maybe for three or four days every quarter. I need that like a week or off, you know, maybe around a long weekend and, you know, just plug in for a short period of time every day to make sure you're sort of if anybody needs you, you're on call, but you're not on call 24 hours and you're unplugged a little bit. So that's helpful. Fine. This may be funny. People hate traveling. I actually don't mind traveling as long as it's comfortable because if I am on an airplane, I'm uninterrupted. Uh, so it's a very good time for me to sort of think about my business and what I need to do. So I find travel somewhat relaxing. This may sound like, you know, very, very new age, but I do like, uh, mindfulness it just it just sit for some period of time make it a point to take a break a couple of times a day for 15 minutes and sort of get your mind and meditate amazing and that's so valuable in a high stressful uh in a stressful environment anything else you'd like to add we haven't talked about any advice you'd maybe give to somebody who's starting in the credit business today who's looking to build a career that you've built similarly if you could talk to yourself 20 years ago that type yeah, of thing yeah. I'd say that the conversation actually I was having with my son and he's saying, look, your generation, you know, you stayed at Goldman for 12 years and I don't think our generation is ever going to stay at one place for that long because, you know, the value proposition is not that you're going to get the gold watch at the end of your career. And I disagree with that to some extent because it was never the value proposition at a place like Goldman. It's a highly entrepreneurial. You have to actually earn your keep every year. But over a period of time, you develop both political and intellectual capital in firms and people need to know you, especially in the investment business, in order to trust you with their money. And I think as that became relatively early in my career, being responsible for $2 billion acquisitions, one of the largest acquisitions we did, it made it to top 10 Wall Street Journal. They were wrong because they counted assets instead of equity. Equity, we were levered. So it shouldn't have made it to top 10, but it did. Uh, so that sort of puts you on the map. And then the people that you were working with were the 
Pete Briggers and Steven Mnuchin's and Mike Montera. These are like legends in the business. And to have them at least have some comfort in you so that if you were bringing a deal, it was going to get the check. There wasn't any reason to move. Well said. And I think that's sort of a lost art. Staying power, cultivating long-term relationships. Yeah, it's, it's a different mindset, I think, today. Salman, anything else you wish I would have asked you that I did not on this interview here? No, I think the thing which, you know, Aaron, you and I are both doing with some of the uh, other stuff that we are involved with is giving back. And, you know, one of the things that came through last time I was in one of the philanthropic discussions was you have to start now. You don't want to be the guy that builds the big monument to himself at the end of his career and then dies before it's finished. I mean, that was one of the stories somebody told that their father spent millions of dollars uh, donating somewhere and he never saw it. I think whatever we can to give back, whether it's in time or in money, is something that I've started doing and I find that to be very, very rewarding. Very important. And you're providing a lot of value in today's market. You built a great business. You got a great team got the right mindset and I'm happy to call you a friend. And Salman, I really just want to thank you again for being on today. I think our listeners will learn a ton. And uh, anybody who's in the market for a bridge loan with a wonderful firm behind it, they know where to find you. And Salman, thanks again for being on. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you for joining the Dealmaker's Edge. Don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Give us a five-star rating so more people can follow the conversation.